So we've uh, we finished up last week uh, with our kind of our discussion of Augustine and really the finished up with the Augustine Pelagian dispute, debate, controversy, um, and the the doctrines that were uh, really at the forefront of that and really how we uh, are the beneficiaries of some prolific writing and thought that Augustine put forward, particularly in the area of our understanding of the sovereignty of God and salvation and the work of God in, in bringing us to faith in Christ, and, and really talked about how this issue of Pelagian thought or man-centered thought around the salvation of men is pervasive, it's ongoing, it doesn't reside only in this point in time in history, even though uh, Augustine addressed the issues formidably, um, these types of things never go away, and so hopefully that discussion will serve us well to, to kind of help us recognize these kinds of doctrines when they emerge in conversations and our efforts to be a faithful witness, um, but also will we'll make us uh, mindful of how to respond faithfully according to the scriptures. Uh, it's during this period of time, though, that there's other things that we talked about historically that kind of lead us into our next uh, section of discussion, our next area of focus. And just to kind of remind you of something that we've talked about previously that, that really uh, sets a little bit of the stage or, or ha- puts the, the framework in place for what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Um, we talked several weeks ago, I, I, probably a couple of months ago, about this issue of the rise of Episcopal power within the church and how the church really began to organize in many quarters around a sort of a singular head in each church, in each area, the bishop. This rise of power and really this rise of sort of institutional type authority, uh, more of a hierarchical institutional type authority that emerged. Um, and we, we highlighted some, some factors that, that sort of uh, contributed to this, the in- historical environment in which this, this grew and these factors that sort of contributed to this, this rise of Episcopal or Bishop power. You had really the enormous and expansive growth of the church, and so there was any time you have uh, an expansion or growth that took place uh, during the early first few centuries of the church, spreading out both uh, numerically and geographically across a large swath of the Roman Empire. Uh, there, you have this tendency to figure out how to organize yourself. Like, what do we, you know, how do we make sure that we're we're teaching effectively, we're protecting the doctrine that was that was once delivered. We're 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 basically faithful in our exercise of Christian conduct and and, and ministry within the communities. And so, there was an environment in which organization was needed and was really called for um, because of this expansion and growth of the church. You also had the influx of significant heresies that really assaulted the church and the doctrines of the church and, and really uh, threatened the, live, the livelihood, it's not the livelihood, but the spiritual life of the church. Um, and so there was this desire for organized and concerted assault or, or counterattack, if you will, against these heretical movements. And, and that sort of was an environment that gave rise to some of this institutional or, or hierarchical power structure. You also had the, um, the emergence of sort of a concentrated understanding of church governance and authority that, that emerged. You had, early on in the church's history, you had a very clear 
uh, adherence to what, the, what was written of in the scriptures by the Apostle Paul, for example. Um, you had a, an elder-type uh, understanding of church leadership, but that, that was, and that was unchallenged for the, for the for certainly through the first century uh, of the church's history. But uh, over the course of time, you have people like Ignatius coming on the scene and sort of endorsing a little more of a hierarchy. They, they, Ignatius, for example, wrote of sort of a three-tiered approach to church leadership, where you have a single bishop. And then you have a presbytery under the bishop or in the form of elders. And then you have deacons under the bishops, excuse me, under the, the presbytery. So you have this, this sort of adjustment, if you will, to a plurality of elders kind of approach that was the biblical model that the apostles followed and that the church actually followed throughout the entire first century. That kind of begins to emerge into a multi-tiered kind of approach that was, that was articulated clearly by, for certainly by Ignatius as well as others. Then you had this emergence of an emphasis on apostolic succession. And this was really prompted by the, the succession emphasis of the Gnostic teachers. Uh, the Gnostic heresy that infiltrated the church, um, they, you know, they attributed their teaching back to the apostles. And so there was sort of a counter approach by uh, the, the, the church, the, the, the clergy in the church, to countermand or counteract uh, this this apostolic succession argument. Bruce Shelley writes this, Jesus had entrusted a secret wisdom to certain teachers before he ascended. These teachers in turn passed on this special truth to other teachers and they in turn to others. So the Gnostic teachers, not the churches, had the true philosophy. So the, the authority of the Gnostic heresy sort of rode upon the idea of this being descended straight from the apostles. And so the... Uh, the, the church fathers, they felt the need to, to counteract that by saying, no, apostolic succession really flows to the true church, to the current leadership of the church, not through the Gnostic heretics. Uh, you have Hexippius in the mid-2nd century. Uh, he, he was a historian. He drew up a succession list of bishops going back to the apostles, at least for Corinth and Rome. And then, according to Shelley, you have later in the 2nd century Irenaeus, in Gaul and Tertullian in North Africa, who followed this anti-Gnostic path mapped out by Hexepius, they pointed to the succession of bishops in the Catholic churches stemming from the apostles and argued that this guaranteed unbroken tradition of the apostles' doctrine within the Catholic churches. Gnostics were wrong, Catholics were right. So you have this environment where you've, you've now got this emphasis on succession, the importance of succession. So the focus now is not on passing on the faith, to faithful men that they might teach others, but it's succession of teachers, succession of leadership that becomes the emphasis. In other words, that it, it, it's, it's, it's tied to almost like a, a lineage, kind of like a, a bloodline kind of idea that you would find in, in sort of a, a monarchical kind of environment. So that, that's, that's how this focus and this emphasis sort of began to emerge in this idea of succession. Now, we had this discussion, this lengthy discussion over the last several weeks about Augustine and his contributions. And I said at the outset that Augustine, though he contributed greatly in the area in particular of uh, our understanding of salvation and sovereign, sovereign, the sovereignty of God in salvation, the sovereignty of God's grace in salvation, and really uh, enlivened an understanding of salvation being saved unto joy in God to finding our our fullest measure of contentment and satisfaction in him and in him alone, that, that, that 
salvation is not just to produce in us a sense of obedience, but it's to produce in us a sense of full joy and satisfaction in God. So he brought that kind of balance to our understanding of, of faith in addition to our understanding of God's sovereign work in it. But Augustine wasn't pure in his understanding of these matters of church leadership. So I wanted to read as a point of transition, as we begin to look at the rise of the papacy, the rise of papal authority in the church, we're just going to introduce it today, but I want to read a quote from Augustine to give you an idea that even Augustine, by this time in his life in the latter part of the the 4th century, said this, There are many other things which most properly can keep me in the Catholic Church's bosom. The unanimity of peoples and nations keep me here. Her authority, inaugurated in miracles, nourished by hope, augmented by love, and confirmed by her age, keeps me here. And then here's the quote. The succession of priests from the very see of the Apostle Peter, the very seat of authority of the Apostle Peter in Rome, to whom the Lord, after his resurrection, gave the charge of feeding his sheep, John 21, up to the present episcopate, keeps me here. So his statement is that one of the things that keeps me in the church and keeps me faithful to the church, among other things, is this understanding of the succession of priests from the very sea, from the, the indoctrinated headship of the apostle Peter forward to the present day. So he would endorse this succession of, of authority and having it rest principally in the, the Roman bishop, the bishop of Rome, the seat of Rome. Now, we're going to talk more about that from a historical perspective, but that just gives you an idea that even Augustine was a part of this understanding and, and endorsing this kind of understanding. It was comprehensive. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that just like I, I pointed out in, the, in prior centuries, you had sort of times of uncertainty where there's massive growth and expansion, and so there's a need for some order and some organization, right? So these are not bad things. They're, they're oftentimes uh, error you know, starts off very incrementally, and oftentimes it can, it can stem from something that is good intent, well-intended, and it's not oriented toward bad doctrine. It just ends up turning that way because of the unfaithfulness of men as they get further and further away from the sound source of authority in the scriptures. So you see that kind of happening in this case as well, where if you have a need for some order and some organization and some, some uh, faithful leadership to be able to pass on sound doctrine, that's not a bad thing. But if you then turn that into some kind of grab for power or some kind of excess authoritative type of leadership or some type of uh, divine right by virtue of succession from Peter all the way down or something like that, that's where the, the sinful nature of men begin to take root and take hold and take something that began with you know, something reasonable or even practical and take it down a path that can be very, very devastating and detrimental uh, in the church and to the body of Christ and, and to the, really the, the mission of the gospel. Um, so that's kind of what you see happening. And this oftentimes comes about in, in uncertain times, in tumultuous times. In fact, I'll put the question out to you for comment. In uncertain times, and I I use that very broadly, intentionally, but in uncertain times, in other words, in times when there is 
a pretty widespread uncertainty or in, in, in a certain tumult in a society or in a culture. I mean, you could think of it in terms of like, you know, a, a wartime environment or something of that nature. Or you could go back to the Great Depression. I mean, these are, these are waves or cycles of history that have massive compre- comprehensive influence on the mindset of people, on how they're reacting and responding to their life and their circumstance and, and how it affects and either shifts or refines their core convictions, right? So tell me, give me some feedback on, on what you think people long for in uncertain or tumultuous times. Leadership, right? They crave, people, we crave strong leadership in times of uncertainty. You see this even playing out with young children. Young children crave leadership. Young children know, even though it doesn't seem like they know sometimes, they know oftentimes, they discover how completely out of control things are if they were in control. They figure that out. In other words, they... They, they touch something that their parents say they shouldn't touch and they get burned and they all of a sudden realize, whoa, there's something to this. There might be things that I don't know yet. Now, they don't think long enough about that to carry them to the next bad decision, but that is something that we innately learn even as children. My wife was telling me about a young, a young guy that she's a, a, a kind of a fifth grader, I think, that she's working with right now in, in, in the school environment. <clears throat> And she very early on discovered, by virtue of things that he was saying and kind of the attitude that he was bringing to her sessions with him, uh, that he probably was not accustomed to showing much respect at home to his mom. And I say probably just to give the benefit of the doubt, but we're quite certain of it. Okay, I mean, in other words, it's been confirmed. It's been confirmed. But at the time, she was sensing that that's. There's something going on here. And, and this young boy was pushing that on her. And she was like, uh-uh. You know, I mean, she, no, that's not going to happen here. And she almost immediately set him down and, and set him straight and said, this is how it's going to go when you're with me. Now, she told me the other day, she said, we have the best relationship now. Things are going so well with this young kid. And she's gotten feedback from the mom. Thank you so much. Think, I mean, kids long for leadership. We, in uncertain and tumultuous times, we crave strong leadership. Now, what happens when that craving for strong leadership is blended with a lack of discernment? Or is overwhelmed by fear? Fear of men, fear of loss, fear of life, right? You see throughout history, throughout epics of history, you see this over and over and over again. Masses of people running to strong leadership out of fear, seeking security, seeking someone to make them feel like things are going to be okay that their lives are going to improve, the situation's going to be better. And if there's a lack of discernment there, people will flock to leaders who are corrupt. Richard, I was just thinking of the whole Eastern Bloc and Russia and the fall of communism. 
and that all fell. And you know, I've looked with amazement that so many of the countries have gone back to communism. Yep. Because exactly what you're saying. They had they had uncertainty. They had you know severe conditions, and there was a strong leader. That's right. Out of communism that arose. That's right. Happens over and over and over again. This should be a strong caution to us as believers. We need not think that we will persist in a, in a, in a season of, of time in our society, in our particular cultural dynamic and political dynamic and governmental dynamic where there will be a level of stability that, that we've enjoyed just, that's just kind of riddled by blips on the screen of, of turmoil. We, we need not think like that. And so the question really gets pressed to us, how would we respond as God's people? Where do we turn as God's people for things like security and hope and confidence and joy, right? We are susceptible as God's people to run after the same things as anyone else would run after, in tumultuous, uncertain, very, very trying times. We're very susceptible to that. I want to invite you as a point of introduction to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I just want to kind of draw a few observations from this as a way to kind of introduce our thinking around this this subject of the rise of, of papal authority and papal power in the history of the church. And just by way of reminder, this period of time, uh, as, as really at the end of Augustine's life, in fact, I mean, even in North Africa, where he was the bishop, uh, the, the, the Vandal invaders were kind of on the doorsteps of Hippo. I mean, shortly after, I mean, very shortly, I mean, I think what's in, within weeks after Augustine died, Hippo was overrun by the Vandals. During, you know, during that same sort of period of time, you have the, the Goths and the Visigoths, not the Goths, the Goths and the Visigoths coming down, the Germanic invaders from the north coming down. You have the, the sacking of Rome. I mean, instability is sort of defining this era. Massive instability and complete cultural shift is defining this period of time. And even with Augustine, that's what's happening even in his hometown. Uh, Justo Gonzalez says this, it was the Germanic invasions that brought about the great upsurge in the Pope's authority. And that's his comment on this idea of instability lending itself to people running to something secure in the form of human leadership. Okay? When you think about this from a biblical perspective, and I've, I've referenced this just in passing before, but I wanted to just kind of go back and, and read the account and draw a few, just a few observations. We're not going to teach you know, through this systematically, but just look at some observations from this particular episode in history. Of course, this is a, the, the account of Samuel, who is a, a judge and a prophet in, in Israel, faithful. Uh, he's, he comes on the scene at a very difficult time in Israel's history, a very unfaithful time in Israel's history, and brings some measure of stability and, and faithfulness uh, to the land. But you, you have this this episode in chapter 8, it says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, 
but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Pay attention to that statement. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also, again, listen, we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the Lord, of the people, excuse me, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So again, just a few quick observations as we enter into this study of the rise of papal papal authority in the church. The first thing I would just kind of point your attention to as we think about this is the importance and necessity of faithful leadership. There is great need, great importance. There's necessity of having faithful leadership. You don't find in Scripture a model of church life and discipleship that is void of leaders, right? In our church, we just had an, an announcement about uh, um, elder nominations in the month of February. I'll repeat that again in the, in the service. We are, we are led by a plurality of elders here. We have people in various leadership roles, assigned leadership roles. We have teachers. We have folks that are involved in community group leadership. Um, we, we, there, there is no... Um, sort of, ab, sort of um, statement against faithfulness, a statement against having leadership in the church. There's an importance and necessity of it, and you see this in the first five verses, because the people are feeling the absence of it. Right? There was faithful leadership, and now they're experiencing the contrast of that faithful leadership by Sam, in Samuel's sons. So, faithful leadership is a good thing. And this account gives us an example of that. Samuel was faithful. There's no clamor for a king when Samuel's 
judging, leading, and shepherding the people. But when his sons are put in charge and their unfaithfulness is brought to bear and revealed, people begin to clamor for leadership. And that's not a bad thing. There's a necessity for faithful leadership in a society, but also for sure in the life of God's people and in the church. But also note, as I kind of highlighted as I read, in verse 5 and again in 19 and 20, that the worldly cravings of faithless followers persists. That what often happens, as I talked about before, in uncertain and unsettling times, is that people who might otherwise be the people of God become worldly in their cravings for a leader. So in this particular case, they're wanting to be like other nations. In other words, they have some kind of glossed over, greener grass, completely naive and totally undiscerning view of what life under other rulers and other nations really is all about. And somehow that represents some type of utopic vision for them. And if they just had that kind of leadership, then all would be well. But you have this other indication further down in the chapter. We also want someone to go and fight our battles for us. So there's a sense of almost, I don't know if laziness is the right term or or. Just, you know, we don't want to we don't want to be bothered by this or if it's just plain fear, probably a combination of all those things. Right. Nevertheless, it doesn't reflect well on the people who are clamoring for a leader. Yes, the situation was bad. There was unfaithful leadership. Samuel's sons were not faithful and we have testimony of that. But that does not abdicate the responsibility of the people who are clamoring for leadership based upon purely worldly desires and worldly cravings. We want to be like the other nations, and we don't want to fulfill our own responsibilities. Now, I want you to think about this, and I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a connection here by way of inference. I want you to think about this because, you know, we're not talking about a, a, a theocracy where we've got, you know, a king over the church now and, and you know, we're, we're going to go to battle against the, uh, you know, the Lutherans or whatever. I mean, that's not what we're talking about here, right? But, but what we are, what we can think about in this context is how we can, when we become slothful in our commitment to the scriptures, in our convictions that rise out of the scriptures, we then will turn to someone else to tell us what we need to think and what we need to believe. And we'll follow that course. How many, how many people and how many churches across this city and around the world operate that way? They are following leadership not because they don't have access to the scriptures. I mean, my goodness, if you've got access to the internet, there's obviously tons of bad, but there's also tons of good. The resources that we have before us for good instruction and good teaching in God's word is, is out there. And if you are indwelt by the spirit of God, if you are truly regenerate and dwelt by the spirit of God, there is this thing called the perspicuity of scripture, the clarity of scripture. We can study for ourselves, right? And understand the scripture and hold convictions based out of that truth. But if we become slothful, negligent, and lazy, we are susceptible to being easily led by corrupt leadership. Easily led. 
by corrupt leadership. So there's a need for faithful leadership, but there's also a caution against the worldly cravings of, of a faithless follower. Someone who just wants to be slothful, have someone else do the hard work for them. Just tell me what I need to believe. Just tell me how I need to act. Just tell me how I need to make this decision about my life. I, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. That's why I'm so thankful for this church who holds up as its primary responsibility faithful exposition and teaching of the word of God to God's people and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. It is not about some exaltation of a personality, even though Shane's got a decent personality and we like him, right? <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. I mean, it's just, just, that's not the point. Faithful teaching and instruction and study deepening our convictions and our understanding around this truth of God's word that transcends time, it transcends epics of history, it transcends times of security and times of insecurity, it transcends all of that. It's eternal in its reliability for life and godliness. Well, there's also, from this text, a costly and corrosive ambition that you see from powerful leaders. So you invest trust and power and authority in people to an an excessive extent, to an unbiblical extent, and power has a tendency to corrupt. What's the statement by Lord Acton? Power corrupts, the absolute power corrupts absolutely, or something like that, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is is that, that men who are invested with blind power tend toward corruption. That's not the de facto certainty with every man who has been given power, but it's certainly, it's the chronicle of history by and large, right? And it's costly. And through through this chapter, verses 10 to 18, you see Samuel saying, do you understand what's going to happen? Do you understand that when this power is invested, this power is going to affect you? You're going to have things taken from you. But no, they resisted because they were faithless and undiscerning. And their desires for leadership were centered not on, I need to be instructed by faithful people. It was, I need security. And I don't want to do the hard work myself. So this this to me is a caution for us as we think about this. As I've said time and time again, you know, I don't want our, our survey of, of church history to be this detached sort of academic study where we look at these times and these periods and these people and we're going, God, these people were so stupid. What was wrong with them? Why couldn't they see? I, I hope that we'll be very, very reflective and we'll look at, as though we're looking in a bit of a mirror sometimes when we look at these things that have happened and not be so proud and not be so vain to think that this could never happen again. That would never be susceptible to these kind of things. Apart from the grace of God and the preserving power of his word to keep your mind straight and clear on truth, anything's possible, right? Anything is possible. We should not be so proud. Well, to just give you a little bit of a, an introduction before we have to wrap up, I know that this has uh, been a long introduction, but <clears throat> just to kind of give you an understanding of, of where we're going to be headed over the next couple of weeks. 
Um, I, I want to talk about what the traditional Catholic understanding is of the papacy. And so we want to start with not you know, a critique, but I want to start just kind of in their words and from their, sort of their, their in teaching and their instruction, um, their understanding of the origins and the continuance of, of papal authority in, in the church. Um, it really starts with, I'm going to give you a few, few bullet points uh, to start with, and then we're going, to, we're going to build this out much more significantly. And let me just start by saying, first of all, Pope means father. And, and just so you know, as a point of history, it was, it was designated to bishops as a term before it was infused with the kind of authority that the Pope has now as, as a term or as a designated title. It means father, and in fact, in the, in the East... In the eastern part of the empire, the eastern church used it quite significantly, you know, and quite, quite more commonly. Um, it was in the west, really, that the title became reserved for the bishop of Rome. That special, unique designation uh, it was something that took place in the west. But it simply means father. Um, and, and the understanding, really, is that it was Jesus who instituted papal authority. Uh, and this is, so this is a... This is a this is taken from a biblical account, a couple of biblical accounts, actually, that they referenced primarily. It was Jesus that said it was upon Peter that the church would be built. By the way, we've titled this study, Upon This Rock, which takes it, its reference point for straight from this passage in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 to 19. So they referenced this where, where Jesus asked the, the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And then Eventually, Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, I tell you that flesh and blood does not reveal this to you. And then he eventually tells them, you're a Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Right? So, so basically, we're going to tease this out more in the, in, in the coming weeks, but that, that basically is the point in time which Christ designated Peter as the preeminent founder, the foundation of the church. Okay? So it starts there. It was... It was ordained. It was designated by Christ himself. So, from the Catholic understanding, they stand on solid ground, biblically, authoritatively, based upon their interpretation of this Matthew passage. They're not, you know, they're not coming from some crazy place. There's other places where they're coming from crazy places, but not this particular point, right? They also would reference... Um, uh, John 21, Luke 22, as reference points for this. Um, they would also argue, though, this is where it gets dicey. This is where their history gets dicey. They would argue that, that Peter spent uh, a quarter of a century in Rome and that he was the founder of the church in Rome. And so they, they would, and, and that, that history is not certain. In fact, from the biblical perspective, it seems very unlikely that the way that they would ascribe Peter's time and presence in Rome it doesn't line up. But we'll talk about that further. But from the Catholic perspective, they would say that Peter spent time there. He founded the church there. He was the bishop there. It was just, that's what, that's what he did. Um, and they would also argue that Peter's authority was widely recognized in the church, which it kind of was, right? I and mean, we'll talk about that. I mean, Peter was recognized as as a leader in, among the disciples in the time in the ministry of Christ. Uh, we see what he did in his inaugural sermon in Acts chapter 2. 
Um, when, when you get to Acts chapter 15, you see the, the Jerusalem council, and he's prominent role there. So, I mean, Peter did have a leadership role, for sure. But they would argue that this is another testament to this, this sort of papal authority. He was recognized amongst the earliest churches to have this. And then this authority was handed down to his successors. And this is where you get into the whole apostolic succession. That, that It's a line. It's a, it's a, a continuous, unbroken line. So, the authority begins with the designation of Christ himself onto Peter as being the foundation of the church. You can't get a higher authority than that. Then you go to the historical reality of what happened after that designation where Peter went to Rome, spent a quarter century in Rome, founded the church in Rome, was the bishop in Rome. So he basically just fulfilled what Christ designated him to fulfill. And oh, by the way, Everybody knew this. The other churches recognized this. They recognized Peter in this way. And then finally, fast forward through the, the annals of time and history, that line is unbroken. There has been a succession of this authority that passes from Peter all the way to the present day. And so that's, that's sort of the bullet, bullet point understanding of the origins and then the continuance of papal authority. We're going to look uh, at a more extensive view of this, and we're going to talk about this from the standpoint of, of the institution of the primacy of the person in the Apostle Peter as the Pope. So they, they, they invest a lot into Peter, the person, as the first Pope, the first Bishop of Rome. But as a point in a matter of history, just to kind of make sure that we're, we're, we're clear about this, and this is why I, I keep coming back to these examples of, of where when discernment fails and when people are not searching the scriptures and, and are not uh, pursuing a course of doctrine based upon the truth of divine scripture as opposed to just the teachings of men who are inclined towards self-centeredness and power and authority and who are reacting to the times, right? We, we react and respond to the times, and if we're not reacting faithfully, then we react in our flesh, and we try to seize power. If there's disorder, we'll try to seize order in an unbiblical way, right? Instead of just trusting the Lord to bring things about in its time, that kind of thing. So you have that going on consistently. But just to make the historical point clear, it, it is in fact true that the, the, the church in Rome... Uh, through history, particularly through this period of time in the 4th and 5th century and even even beyond that, um, there was a level of doctrinal faithfulness that was sort of largely centered in Rome. So there was, in other words, there was convictions around doctrinal accuracy and and the sort of the, the battling against heretical influence in the life of the church. Uh, naturally, because it was located in Rome, which was, for a long period of time, it was the eternal city. It was the capital of the Roman Empire. It stands to reason it became the largest church with the most prestige. Right Now, I'll give you a, a sort of a, a modern kind of related example. 
How many times have you heard or have you referenced John MacArthur? Or what's done at John MacArthur's church? Or pick your other sort of respected, evangelical, doctrinally faithful leader. Right? So it's that kind of thing. You're not talking about, you know, John MacArthur, though some may, may think he's the Protestant Pope, I don't know. But, but we, don't, we don't make that point of reference to, to, to demonstrate a certain ecclesiastical fealty to his headship over the church, right? But there's a reputation that's been built over time that's been proven out, and, and there's been writing and, and teaching, and I mean, you, got a whole, you had a whole body of material, right? And so you draw upon that, and there's a certain respect and a certain benefit that we gain from learning and, and reading and understanding teaching from a particular leader. Well, Rome had that kind of sort of reputation or prestige in, in the church. That doesn't mean that the bishop of Rome should be the pope, right? You see how that can just get sideways really, really quickly. We can find examples of that in our normal life all the time where we have respect for someone, but it doesn't mean that you take it to an unbiblical extreme. It's also true that, as I said, uh, the church in Rome was the largest church. And when the time, and as we've studied, when Constantine came to power and gave favor to the Christian church and to the Christians and invested tons of money into the church, and over that period of time after Constantine, and then I think Theodosius uh, instituted uh, Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, I mean, you had this period of time where, where ecclesiastical authority was prestigious from a civil and governmental perspective. So you had the church, particularly in Rome, elevated to this place of, of empire, imperial prominence. And that truly did happen in the, in the course of history. So you can easily see how, how people would begin to turn their attention and their focus and their gaze toward this this city, this eternal city on a hill, where this church, with all of its pomp and circumstance and all the imperial resources that are being poured into it, and some very uh, good things that were taking place in terms of the, the protecting of sound doctrine and the arguments against heresy and that kind of thing. So, so there's all these factors that are contributing to this, this elevation of Rome. But again, what do we turn to for our understanding about the church, how it's organized and leadership and these kinds of things. Do you draw from these factors of history? I mean, imagine if someone came into this fellowship and demonstrated phenomenal leadership ability and was charismatic and very articulate and just easy to talk to and kind of established just a natural interpersonal relational following. Do you think that the elders of this church would say, that person needs to be an elder. Look at that. I mean, they've got a great job. They have a great reputation in the community. Do you know that they're on the, they're on the board of the Chamber of Commerce? Did you, did you hear about this person? Do you know how? I mean, and they're faithful. I think that they pay their taxes on time every year. I mean, they, they obey the law. I've been behind this guy. He never goes over the speed limit. Drives me crazy, right? I mean, all the, you can think of all these things where we would, we would ascribe sort of social even moral prestige to a person, gifts and abilities to, to influence people, possibly real leadership skills. But do you elevate that 
to a position of prominent leadership in the life of the church? Or do you turn to Scripture and say, what does Scripture call us to look at when we're evaluating qualifications for leadership? Is this person above reproach? Do they manage their household well? I mean, all these different qualifications of, of eldership in the church would have to be measured over a period of time. You don't get to come into a church and throw down some whiz-bang rhetoric and all of a sudden you're in charge of the place, right? Unless, unless the people become enamored with those forms of leadership and turn to that and elevate that and say, that's a gifted person. I want to follow that kind of person. There's nothing wrong with someone being articulate, being having a good personality. You can find really, really faithful people, godly people that have an enormous array of interpersonal, social, leadership, business, skills, knowledge, intelligence, and all that. So I'm not saying that these things are mutually exclusive. I'm just saying that the test is the scripture and what the scripture teaches about leadership. And when you step away from that, in any degree, the, the pull of the world and our flesh is to pull us further and further and further. And that's what you have happening in the life of the church in the elevation of Rome and the church at Rome and the bishop in Rome. You have all these real circumstances, these real historical factors that are contributing to a mindset of followership and elevation that is not rooted and grounded in the truth of Scripture. And we can all be susceptible to that. We must be on guard against that. Well, we're going to get much deeper into this. We're going to look at uh, the, the, the primacy of the person of Peter, and then we're going to work our way out to this whole issue of succession. And we're going to, we're going to test that against the truth of Scripture. So we'll, we'll be doing that over the next few weeks. Anybody have any questions or comments, conclusions? Yes, sir. Please don't ask me a hard question. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, I don't know what the time gap is, but would, would the uh, rise of Ambrose be confusing for that? Because didn't he kind of come to power because of some of those things? Like, he was just a good speaker, a good leader, not necessarily grounded in looking, like, let's look at the word to see if he's qualified to, to lead. Well, you have, yeah, you had people being elevated. I mean, that could happen in any environment. Yeah. So it really does come back to the faithfulness of, of the person, right? So, um, are you talking about the fact that he was a, an effective governmental leader? That, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that was kind of the people That's right. right yeah. that, happened, that happened quite a lot, actually. Um, in fact, um, I, was, it, was it Leo that was reluctant to become the Pope, I think? One, one of the early official popes was very reluctant to take that seat of power. But the people, you know, sort of clamored for his leadership. So I'm, I'm not sure what your question is. I guess, but yeah, the question would be that that was kind of a, the way he, you know, got into his position, and it ended up being a good thing, right, um, for the church. Um, I mean, I think he was the one that even was uh, like called out the the pope at that time as the leader, the emperor. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I think that I think that someone could be elevated to a place of leadership and and, and not be tested in the ways that you would want to test them from the standpoint of scripture, but still pass the test in hindsight. So, I mean, that, that certainly can happen. I just would not advise that as a matter of course in the context of uh, leadership. It's a good question. All right, well, we got to be dismissed.